We're in a series right now called Build Your Life. It's about the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus put forth a visionary manifesto for life in his kingdom, under his lordship. And we're in a section that many call like the ethical teachings of Jesus, the nitty-gritty practical life issues that we all face. And Jesus has some hard words to say, but they are all good news because he's going to put forth a new standard, a new bar, a new benchmark, kingdom commands, and he's not doing it to shame us and make us feel bad. He is doing it to show us the kind of life that's possible when we live into Jesus being the Lord and reigning over every aspect of life. So see, everything we talk about in these sections as good news from Jesus for the kind of life that he actually believes is possible the more and more he reigns in life. So we looked at the power, Jesus said, that we have of overcoming anger and division through courageous communication. We looked at the power of overcoming lust through God being the source in our life through fighting like heaven to have our souls satisfied in God. And this morning, the next topic that Jesus turns to is divorce. And we're going to see how God's power in our life can make it such that we can overcome divorce through the covenant commitment that God designed. Let's get into the scripture that Jesus spoke here. Matthew 5, just 31 and 32. It was said, or it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, this is a short section. It seems very harsh. It seems very abrupt. And so this is one of those situations where the context matters a lot. Some crucial context is that it, by this time in the history of Israel, marriage had become very cheap. People were looking for reasons to justify ending a marriage. The religious leaders of the day were having debates among themselves along the lines of, what's the out clause? What makes it okay? The school of Hillel, a famous school of the Pharisees, said that a, that a man may divorce his wife for anything that causes him to not find favor, or excuse me, anything that causes her to not find favor in his eyes, quote, even if she spoiled a dish for him. This is the wisdom of the religious leaders. The school of Akiba, another school of the Pharisees, says that divorce was permitted, quote, if he found another fairer than she. This is how far the religious leaders of the day had fallen from God's original 
design and purpose in marriage. At that time, the, a woman had no legal right to initiate divorce or keep herself from being divorced. And if she was divorced, she was in a very, very bad spot because she would be seen as an adulterer. Women in that day were really, it's almost essentially unable to provide for themselves based on how the society was set up. So it, it was putting a woman in a very, very bad place if she were given that certificate of divorce from her husband. So Jesus sees all of that. He sees that the direction humanity goes on its own strength without God is that marriage becomes cheap. Divorce becomes a very normal, vicious cycle. And so he steps in. Some very strong language. We've looked at this framework that Jesus is using here in the Sermon on the Mount in the ethical section, these ethical teachings in particular, where he looks at an old way of doing something or an old command. He asserts a new kingdom way, a new kingdom command. And then he asserts a transforming practice that's going to help us get there. So for this particular issue, the old way that's brought up is in regards to divorce, well, as long as you give a certificate of divorce, then that's all it takes. That's Jesus is saying, that is an old way. That is not the new kingdom command. Coming into the context that Jesus finds himself where it was unfortunately had fallen so far from God's design and been cheapened so much, Jesus comes in with some very harsh words and says, the new command is just stop getting divorced. And there's a transforming practice beneath that, I believe, that Jesus has that's going to take us back to the heart of God and, and we'll get there in a minute. But the hard word from Jesus is, hey, uh, except for adultery, just stop getting divorced. In the context, you can see why such strong language is, is necessary. And unfortunately, our culture is, is very much similar to that first century mindset. Divorce has become so rampant. Marriage becomes so cheap. Barna, who does great studies and statistics on culture, said that for the youngest generation now, or the younger generation, under, I shouldn't say youngest because they split them up quite a bit. The under 35 crowd had a summary statement based on the, the research that Barna did that divorce now seems like what is called a, an unavoidable rite of passage. Like it just seems like part of, an inevitable part of life. And serial marriage is expected to be the norm where you're just going to have a different partner for different stages of life. And the U.S. now has, according to Barna's research, the highest rate of divorce in the developed world. So those, those are some statistics that, similar to where Jesus walked on the scene 2,000 years ago, and here's the religious leaders saying, yeah, well, if you find someone who's more fair than your current or you find someone who spoils your dish, yeah, that's enough. Move on to the next. It's very similar to today. If you look at the culture, the pop culture, how marriage itself is presented in TV shows, movies, music, is it even a value? 
Is it even a good thing? Think of your t- favorite TV show, your favorite movie. It's doubtful that there's a positive picture of marriage. It's often portrayed as too hard, unnecessary, old school, holds you back, ties you down. This is the same kind of vicious cycle that Jesus was confronting when he came onto the scene and and saw what humanity was able to do on their own strength. The status quo, so to speak. And into that context, he steps with some really strong language. Where he says, except for adultery, just don't get divorced. Now, I would argue that that is probably a hyperbole in some sense, given that based on God's word from the beginning to the end, we know that God does not tolerate abuse. God is not someone who condones abuse. So there are situations that if a person finds themselves in, in the context of marriage, being that traumatic abuse, I do not believe God would say, yes, stay there and get abused. So, there are things like that that need to be deeply thought through, but that's not at all the context of what Jesus was talking to, who he was talking to. He was talking to the religious leaders and how they had allowed the culture to become so far below God's design. And that's where I want to really focus in on that transforming practice. And what Jesus, I believe, is getting at when he has that very strong, just stop getting divorced mindset, that's this new command. I believe underneath that, there is a transforming practice where he's calling his religious leaders and therefore the people back to the covenant design of marriage, that there is a a way to overcome this vicious cycle that's tearing lives apart and tearing families apart, and that is to go back to the covenant commitment that God designed. We actually see Jesus specifically talk about this to the religious leaders again in Matthew 19. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there to verse 3 where Jesus expands on this transforming practice of how do we overcome that vicious cycle of divorce. Matthew 19, verse 3. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. So there we go. We know their hearts. To test Jesus. They're trying to trap him. They asked Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? So that is, again, an echo of one of the schools of thought of the day. The religious leaders in certain schools of thought were saying, yep, get a divorce for any and every reason. And Jesus responds to that mindset and says, haven't you read At the beginning, the creator made them male and female. And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not 
man separate? Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? This is a fascinating response. Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. That's fascinating. It was not this way. It's not God's intent. It's not God's design. God has a better way from the beginning and now in the kingdom of God. If we want to live into the kingdom of God, God has a better way forward. Now let me speak to that for a moment. If you're in this room and you've been divorced, then this teaching of Jesus is meant to move forward, not behind. In the sense there is the abundance of grace over our lives where what has happened in our past is covered by the blood of Jesus. So there is not condemnation in the body of Christ for where we have fallen short. There is the blood of Jesus that covers us. And so there is a basking in that reality that is needed to cover our past. And from there, what Jesus is attempting to do in the Sermon on the Mount is say, and now look forward. What is the vision for your life? What is the hope for your future? What is possible in the character transformation in your life when God reigns in every way? And the hope is, Jesus is saying, no matter what has happened in the past, it is covered by the blood of Jesus, and your future can and will be different under the lordship of Christ. And that's where he's going with it. And his plan, his transforming practice, is go back to the beginning. Look at God's design. God has a purpose in marriage. He says, haven't you read, at the beginning the creator made them male and female. It's one of the first things that God does in creation, right? It's part of his perfect creation that would see his glory expressed out into the world would, would be to create humanity, male and female, in the image of God. It reflects his glory to the world like nothing else does. And then he shows purpose in that creation. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So that they are no longer two, but one. Jesus is going back to the beginning to call the leaders and therefore the culture to look into God's divine design. God has purpose in marriage. And so the purpose in marriage is what's going to help us get rid of the toxic mindset that the leaders had today and our culture has today of, well, just for any and every reason, just get divorced, cheapen it. Be offended by one little thing and just, yeah, there you go, you're justified now. Jesus is saying, no, we've got to look back to the purpose that God designed marriage for. And what he uses is what we would call, what the Bible calls, covenantal language. The two will become one. That's covenant. We really don't do much covenant work in our culture anymore. Marriage is slash was one of the last 
vestiges of the idea of a covenant relationship. But it's all throughout the Bible. It's ultimately the relationship that God wants to have with us. But it's so foreign, we almost don't even understand it. So I want to take us to a weird passage with Abraham where God demonstrates this covenant relationship where two become one. And from there, we can see and understand a little bit more about God's design and purpose in marriage in Genesis, where God says the two become one. Essentially, what does that mean? So in Genesis 15, the story of Abraham is kind of like right in the middle of it. It starts at Genesis 12, where God calls Abraham. He calls him away from his life of of comfort and leisure and calls him out into the perilous adventure of a relationship with God in which all of his greatest dreams will be fulfilled, but it's going to cost him everything he knows currently. And God makes some unbelievably powerful promises to Abraham that through him, He will become a nation, a great nation, and God will give him a land, a promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And through his seed, barren and old as he was, there would be a nation birthed that would number the stars in the sky. And as God continues that relationship with Abraham, he at one point wants to demonstrate in physical act the nature of that covenant relationship. So in chapter 15, verse 9, he says, Bring me a heifer that's three years old, and a female goat that's three years old, and a ram that's three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Now, to us, this doesn't mean much of anything, right? If God said to you, hey, bring me a heifer, it, right, nothing. <laughs> okay. okay. Abraham knew exactly what it meant. For that time... For that language of the day, that was an invitation to covenant relationship with another person. In verse 12, he goes on, God says, or it says that Abraham brought all these things to the Lord. He cut them in half. It's a key word. He cut them in half, and he laid each half over against the other. So you kind of imagine, it's a little bit of a, a weird and, and kind of gruesome picture, but all these different animals that God said to bring to him, Abraham cut them in half, spread them apart, put one half over here, one half over here. So you've got a heifer, a half of a heifer over here and over here. And then you have, what else did he ask for? A goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. So you have a lineup, kind of a row of all these dead animals cut in half and spread apart. And then their blood flows down the middle. A little gross. But there is unbelievably deep symbolism in it. It goes on to say, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And then, behold, a a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and flaming torch. So picture that, a, a fire pot that's got smoke coming out of it and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. So you got your 
dead animal halves on each side. You got blood down the middle, and you got a fire pot and a smoking torch passing through them. On that day, it said, verse 18, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. So the idea is that these two covenantal partners would stand on the opposite side of the pathway, so to speak. And all these animals, dead, cut in half, on each side, blood down the middle. And then, at the same time, each would walk through and they would pass each other along the way through the blood and they would end up on the other side where the other one started. And in that ceremony, there is a representation of something happening. The two are becoming one. That the two are exchanging places with one another. They are exchanging identities. They are now sharing everything that they have. They are saying, we are making a covenant in blood, and the blood represents a death taking place, not only of the animals, but of the person. That there is a major sacrifice taking place so that our two distinct identities can now be shared and become one. The word covenant is the Hebrew word for cut. Cut. And it means it. The reason why it is such is because the idea is that for a true covenant oneness in relationship, a death to self have to, has to take place. Now, you can ultimately see where this is going with our relationship with God in the ultimate covenant relationship, his death and our death. So we can share everything that he has. We can give him everything we've got. Which is, by the way, we're not bringing much to the table. (laughs) We're giving him all our sin, all our shame, all our brokenness. And he's taking that on himself and giving us everything he's got. All the righteousness of heaven, all the inheritance of heaven becomes ours in Christ if You're in covenant oneness with him. But we're talking about marriage. (laughs) It's meant to be that kind of same depth of death and life that the two become one. And so Jesus' remedy for the horrible cheapening of his beautiful design for two humans to become one at the the highest level possible, Jesus says, you just got to go back to the beginning, to my design, and understand the depths of what I mean by a covenant commitment where two die and become one so that those two can become more fully alive than they've ever been. Let's look at two specific purposes in that covenant commitment of marriage 
that further help us understand the, the gravitas, the gravity, the depth, the power, the profundity of what God is going after in the covenant of marriage and why when we live into and understand and make the commitment to that covenant, it will break the power of divorce. Number one, intimacy. When Jesus quotes the book of Genesis in Matthew 19, that for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, the two will become one flesh. Back in the book of Genesis, a little bit later, right after that, Marriage, first marriage passage is spoken by God. There is a description of what that oneness looks like in Genesis 2, 25, where it says, The man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. This is before the fall. The man and his wife, living in this covenant oneness, were both naked and felt no shame. These are meant to be metaphorical as, as well as they might have been literal. There is deep spiritual significance in these words. Naked and unashamed. This is a picture of what marriage is all about. It's not simply physical descriptions. These are metaphors for human relational intimacy at its highest physical, emotional, and spiritual freedom. Because the result of what happened after the fall is what we all know to be true. We cover ourselves from one another. We hide in shame. We try to protect. There is a wall now up that later Ephesians chapter 2 calls a wall of hostility between one another where the other, whoever that is, even, even a spouse, the other becomes a threat. I have to hide. I have to sow fig leaves. I have to protect myself. I'm vulnerable to be hurt. And that is exactly where God designed marriage to be a place of healing intimacy, back to the original design. Like Adam and Eve, we all have brokenness. We all run and hide. We're all fallen. We all hide from each other. We all sew on fig leaves. We all guard ourselves from one another, put walls up, try to protect ourselves. Don't let others in, right? Because we're scared. We're vulnerable. We don't want to be hurt. We figure that if, if someone knew everything about me, they, they would run. I can't let, see someone, let someone see all my brokenness, all my shame, all my sin, all my regret. They would surely run. But God's design in marriage is naked and unashamed. That it would be a process, and that's a key word, by which we learn the love of God, essentially. We learn to allow the walls to come down 
where we can be exposed in our most vulnerable ways, our deepest secrets and faults and fears and shame, yet over the covenant of a lifetime, the trust can be built that in spite of our worst, we are loved. We are accepted. We are forgiven. We are fought for. We are cherished. We are nourished. We are encouraged. We are empowered. That is the love of God meant to be put on display so that we know naked and unashamed because that is ultimately how we are before God. And it's such a mirror reflection. Even even after we're Christians, don't we still often try to hide from God? Try to hide our shame? Try to pretend that that desire is not there or we hide our brokenness or our fears and we just try to put on the fig leaves before God. I'm, I'm good, God, I'm good. Doesn't work with God, doesn't work with marriage. It's go back to the covenant where you're naked and unashamed. Where you let the love of God accept you in all of your brokenness, forgive you, cover you, bless you, encourage you, empower you. And who am I talking about right now, God or marriage? Yes. That's the point. Number two, holiness. Marriage is a place to die to yourself and take on the character of Christ. We see that in the very covenant image itself. It's a death of blood so that the two can share identities and come more fully alive together. But we have to understand that purpose and believe it and therefore have grace and patience for one another in the process because our culture does not accept the hard road of holiness. Our culture wants just happiness. I think it was Gary Chapman who wrote the five love languages, great book, and he, I think he wrote a book on marriage. I might be making this up, but he said something to this effect that you, we got to be careful. God didn't design marriage to make you happy, but to make you holy. And that gets right to the crux of so many cultural issues that we're, we're born and bred consumers that w- without any fault of our own, we're, we're taught by every single advertisement we've ever seen in our life, which by the time we're an adult is, you know, more than we could possibly count. We've been given the message that you deserve to be happy right now, right now, on demand. Don't be uncomfortable, not even for a moment. If it's hard, something's wrong, find a better option because you deserve it. You deserve instant gratification. Those are some of the core values of our current consumer culture that are coming our way every day. And they are a marriage killer. Because if you bring into your marriage the idea of as soon as this is hard, something's wrong, it's not going to last. Because it's going to be hard forever forever. 
I'm just preaching the Bible. This is not a testimony. It's hard because you're involved, not your spouse. It's hard because I'm not yet transformed to be fully like Jesus. So I make it hard. And that's okay. Especially if you go back to number one. The intimacy that is there because of the covenant commitment to one another to have grace for each other for better or for worse. That then gives you the strength to be honest and to pursue a path of holiness. And if you do, marriage is designed by God to be the, if you're married, that primary refiner's fire that through which you get absolutely made to be more like Jesus. And I'm not joking at all, and I know it's kind of funny and weird and hard, but it's like the reality, there's nothing else that will confront you every day with your lack of Christ-likeness. And that, that, that we, don't need to, we don't need to hide is the point. Don't go into the fig leaf mode. It's confronted because of the grace that's there, the covenant commitments that's there, and the pursuit of wanting to grow. And the idea of if then we'll bring that, the brokenness that's there honestly to one another, then there's the promise of unbelievable growth. We are made for community as being the primary mechanism through which God grows us to be more like Christ. And marriage is, if you're married, that highest microcosm of community that you will know in this life. And so it's meant to be a place where we work out our salvation. In fear and trembling, the word says, we work out that path to holiness. 1 John 1, 6-9 is a fantastic passage for this. It's not about marriage, but it's all about marriage if you're married. Let's read it real quick. Actually, starting in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and don't live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us or cleanses us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. This is a foundational passage about Christian life for both intimacy with God and holiness. And this was a, a verse, a passage that, that my wife and I came on 22 plus years ago in our, as we were first married. By the way, our 22nd anniversary was yesterday. So it's working. <laughs> but there's a powerful promise in this passage that if we are honest. So this is the parallel to the fig leaf. Get rid of the fig leaf. If we're honest with one another, confess them, bring them into the light. There is an amazing promise that we will have fellowship. Now, who's with who? If you read the passage 10 times, answer the question. When you are honest and when you confess, who are you confessing to and who will you have fellowship with? Both God 
and that other person. They're inextricably linked. To be honest and confess to have fellowship with God and the other person for both of them. It's unbelievable in how connected we are meant to be to community. So if you're married, that's your highest community. So there's the honest confession. And what is the promise? That not only are you forgiven, but God will purify you from all unrighteousness. It's the same idea as a holiness being transformed from one degree of glory to another to actually be like Christ, to have your character grow. It's the same thing as having your heart purified from all unrighteousness. It's talking about that's not the same thing as forgiveness. Those are two different things. Forgiveness is God sees all your sin and he covers it with the blood of Jesus. Purified, that's the sanctification. Your heart actually changes to become more like Jesus. And it's saying this happens in honest community. And if you're married, there's your highest. One other place where we see this is where Paul is looking for a metaphor to describe the beauty and the power and the depth of marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. And he comes up with the picture that marriage in God's eyes, is so profound, it is that the relationship that Christ has with his people can be described as like a marriage. That Christ is like the bride and us, we the people, are like the bridegroom. But think about the affirmation of the value of God's purpose in marriage. If it can be used to describe the very relationship that God has in his saving effort with his people. But the covenant is still there. There's still the call to die so that you can come fully alive. The mutual death for mutual life, and it's in the passage. That's where he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up. In what fashion? Death for her. Why? So that we, the her, the bride, could come fully alive. And he's saying at the same time, this is the, about us and our relationship with God, this is about healthy marriage. That we go into it expecting to sacrifice, expecting to die, expecting to die to ourself daily. And that's the key. I mean, I think as men, we all kind of get that little bravado going, oh, yeah, lay down my life for her. That's the call. Give himself up for her. So, you know, if it, if it came to it, I would, I would take a bullet for my wife. I would lay down my life for her. That's great. Would you die daily for her? That's really the question here. Will you sacrifice and die to self daily for her? That's the journey of holiness. And it goes, he goes on to say, and wives, submit to your husbands. That's a death. That's a death that's not popular in our culture. But it's right there in God's word. It takes work to work out what that looks like, and it can be abused. So we, you gotta be careful and spend time. And I think the biggest 
most important way to interpret that is to just go up one verse to the opening of the entire passage about marriage, which, by the way, is not typically in your Bible for a very, very bad translation. But 521, as Paul opens the, the, the talk about marriage, he says that your hearts coming into marriage will be this, and this is covenant, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, then all the rest of it. That is covenant in, in, in its deepest essence. Submitting to one another. Dying for one another. And you will become more alive than you ever knew possible. But it's going to cost you everything. That's the path to holiness and the path to joy. Whereas our, as our culture says, oh, it's just all about instant happiness. How's that working? God says, no, it's about holiness that will lead to lasting joy. I will sing a new song. I will sing a new song.